suddenly I get wrapped up in the foreclosure crisis. And what I mean by that is I get notices of foreclosure. I'm dealing with servicers at the time. I'm watching everybody on television trying to figure out what's going on. And nobody is speaking to my experience. None of it makes sense. And again, I know business. I know how deals are made. I think I understand our system, and yet nothing makes sense. The Obama administration run, um, rides a wave of uh, a people's mandate, really, to kind of clean up all the what we thought at the time was all of the uh, the market and the machinery. And uh, as it turns out, Obama puts the same people in positions of power in his cabinet that had created this train wreck that destroyed my life in 2008. Now, I don't know any of that at the time. I'm just picking pieces out left and right, right? So one thing leads to another. This tsunami, this avalanche, this incredible economic maelstrom comes and wipes me out, right? What's up? Thanks for stopping by the show. I'm the host, Sean Dustin. This is your first time listening. Welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Today is a episode which I've been promoting uh, the new true crime documentary series, The Con. And today uh, I'm doing a co-hosted uh event on another platform called the Ripple Effect Podcast, hosted by Ricky Verandis, which actually was uh, a previous, I want to say it was number 52, I believe. <laughs> Don't even know my own catalog. How funny. So yeah, that's going to be, uh, that was, uh, his was episode 52, uh, which is, uh, when I had Ricky on my show and, uh, what I had done is I had, I had gotten, uh, uh an invitation to screen and uh, to screen the, the, the series, uh, it's a five part series and then to, uh, interview Patrick Lovell. And I watched it before I, uh, or yeah, I watched it before I, I interviewed Ricky and I, you know, after we did the show, I said, Hey dude, there's this documentary series. You need to check this out, man. I mean, it's, it's, got a lot of good stuff in it, man. And, uh, so he did. And we decided that, you know, it'd be best for us to just do a combined effort and, uh, interview him together that way. One, one recording, two platforms. And it also gives, uh, you know, Patrick more time to, uh, do other things instead of having to do two, two episodes or two full hours, whatever it would have ended up being. So that's what I'm bringing to you today. Uh, well, also what I would like to, uh, promote is the, uh, his show or actually the first episode of this series is going to be airing free, uh, on, I believe there's, I'll have links to it in the, uh, in the show notes, but there was actually, uh, I think the con Facebook page and also the real progressives Facebook page, uh, should be airing it as well, but all of the, uh, relevant information will be available in the show notes. Um, yeah, uh, it's mind blowing, uh, what 
they uncovered and how implicit our own political system is in almost, I would say, uh, just allowing this to happen, um, you know, from deregulating to, you know, all of the different things that have passed to like unravel. Uh, one of them is the, uh, uh, the Glass-Steagall Act, I believe, which is one of the last uh, protections that we had from the uh, the stuff that happened in the Great Depression. You know, FDR uh, put in the New Deal where, you know, they put a bunch of uh, protections for the American people, taxpayers, to protect us from these big banks. And, you know, what I keep seeing time and time again, you know, either from the Great Depression when they crashed it there to, you know, maybe some of the other things that you can go through in our history from the, you know, savings and loan, 2008 financial crash, everything that that seems to be jacked up in our society, you know, the common denominator of all of the major issues are banks. Are the are the banks? I just don't understand it, man. Uh, you know, I, and as a public or a population, we just seem to like, we're so busy fighting with each other over the dumbest stuff, uh, you know, whether or not to wear a mask or to not wear a mask. I mean, come on, man. There's so many other more important things that are happening behind the, behind the scenes. Like you guys are, not everybody, but I mean, if you're out there and you're one of these people that is, you know, at every turn taking the bait of division, wake up, man. Seriously. It's, uh, you know, it's almost like three card Monty, you know, uh, or, or, uh, no, it, it actually is. It's just misdirection and, and sleight of hand. You know, they, they get you to pay attention to what's going on over here while they're busy raping you over here. And if you don't, I mean, I know, I know you guys want to, you know, most of the population are good people and, you know, they don't think about doing nefarious shit. Uh, but when it comes to money and people profiting, th there is no amount that is enough for these people. There's no amount, right? You could give them a billion dollars and they would still want more. It's not enough. The power, the money, the greed, the, the, everything that goes along with it. And there's ton, there's a bunch of different legs that allow this to happen. I mean, it's crazy when you really start digging into it from the honey traps to, to getting the politicians to play ball with you. I mean, if anybody that doesn't know what a honey trap is, that's where, you know, they, they get, take you out to a party or to something. They get you jacked up on, on a bunch of coke and, and, you know, get you on film. Uh, doing you know, either cheating on your wife or you know just something that is going to be so detrimental if it is found out that they bend you to their will, and it's this isn't me making this up. This actually happens. What do you think Epstein and Maxwell started out as? That's what it started out as. Is is uh. Uh, a way for, I don't know who, if it was Israel or, or who, who was behind that, but I mean, Jocelyn Maxwell's dad was Mossad. So I mean, go figure. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, they just get you in compromising positions and they force you to play ball. And that's what, uh, Epstein and Maxwell originally started out as, as to bribe 
or blackmail, um, you know, for science and, and some other of these, uh, technologies, um, for, I don't know, like, I don't know exactly who they were working for, but I know that that's what it started out as. And unfortunately they didn't, they didn't count on Epstein being a perv, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, wanting to mess with, with underage girls, um, and so they kind of got, you know, it's almost like they got high on their own supply and ended up screwing up the whole deal. Uh, so, I mean, this, this, this is real stuff and it's just, it's all a part of it, man. It's like the, it's, I, if you start going down the rabbit hole, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And, you know, for the average person, you know, you just don't think that our government is capable of doing something like that, um, or people in it, but it is. It is way more nefarious than you think. So start paying attention. Stop listening to CNN. Stop listening to Fox News. Stop listening to these main these mainstream media outlets that are doing nothing but programming you. Nothing but programming you. That's it. That's what it's designed to do. It's an, it's it's one of the eight tentacles of the you know of the elite octopus that is controlling our society. And controlling everything that happens in it. So, I mean, you can call me crazy. You can call me a conspiracy theorist. You can call me whatever you want. But, you know, when it come, when 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 you finally wake up and you realize what's happening, and that oh my god, this isn't this is nothing what I I thought it was supposed to be, or even looks like what I thought it was. <laughs> It's pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty intense when you come to the realization and you wake up. And I'm not talking about being woke. I'm talking about waking up from the the uh, the Matrix is a perfect example of that. The movie, you know, where when he finally wakes up out of the Matrix and is like, "What?" It's almost like that. So, anyways, I've rambled on way too much about this, but I mean, it's something that I really feel pretty passionately about. Um, and you know, I'm no, I'm no investigative journalist. I'm nobody. I'm just a, a, a guy that was curious about some stuff and, you know, decided to go on a, a fact finding mission or may, maybe just a mission in general. I mean, you don't need a whole lot of, you know, just, just motivated to trying to understand where we are and how we got here and like, what is it going to take to fix this huge mess? That, you know, the government's gotten so big that, like, how are we going to rein it back in? How are we going to make it to where, you know, you don't have federal prosecutors? Uh, here, here's a, here's, here's a, a funny, a funny thing. Well, it's not funny, but I it just, it's something that, that I've, I came to uh, light as I was investigating some other things. So did you realize that a two, two of the, the, uh, women that I've talked to that are in federal custody on a Northern, uh, district of Texas's, uh, conspiracy, methamphetamine conspiracy in a DEA, uh, uh, sting or whatever you want to call it. I asked them. So I asked one of them, I'm like, when, like, what is the population, uh, in your prison? Would you say are there on conspiracy? And she said 70%. I'm like, all right, well, I didn't really, that's a lot, but I didn't think anything of it at the time. Then I talked to my friend Joe, who uh, was, because I listened to his episode with one of the co-defendants of Melissa Veach, and I'm going to be interviewing her, Ashley Simpson, and uh, 
it's uh same thing. He she said seventy percent when he asked her. Like they're not we this wasn't coordinated. So that's like a canary in the mind for me, right? Seventy percent in two facilities on conspiracy, which means just hearsay. Something's wrong when you've got a a prison population that is majority there for non-investigative work really like what what did you do you you went and you found uh seven seven criminals that were were heavily motivated by a reduction in sentence to say whatever the prosecution wanted them to say in order to get the convictions so i don't know how that system actually works but i mean to me it seems like you know you have this uh uh you know 2008 crisis that happened because people were were in uh, just passing through mortgages um you know just to get them into mortgage backed securities so they could to you know kill it on the back end uh of this implosion well the commodity was mortgages right and getting as many of them in there as you could in order to package them up and then be able to sell them on wall street so i mean it really didn't matter it was just volume right well i i I think that this is the same model that they use in the in the federal system you know but instead of the commodity being mortgages the uh the commodity is actually people and labor and they're just rounding them up slapping them in there with exorbitant amounts of time doing no investigative work other than talking to to people but there's no evidence. It's just somebody said, hey, I, I, you know, think about it this way. What if your son or daughter or family member, for that matter, uh, you know, is a drug addict and they're struggling and somehow because somebody that they had talked to and maybe bought a, a gram or, or an ounce or something from them prior uh, and they get wrapped up in some conspiracy because somebody just said their name and that's it game over what the what what is that i mean that doesn't take any kind of investigative work other than than somebody telling you a name you going and getting that person and then now you trying to flip them and get them to talk and give you some other names and if they're an immoral person they're going to give you some more names and then you're going to add that to your indictment. So I mean, where is the incentive, the, the incentive, how are they being incentivized, you know, as a prosecutor a prosecutor or a judge or something. But the end result is, especially in the federal system is you get a longer sentence. I don't even know, man. And I'm going to dig into this a lot further and I'm going to start paying closer attention to this because there's something wrong here. There is definitely something wrong here, and there's definitely something wrong in the northern district of Texas where they're handing out way more time than I think they are in almost any other district, and that's another thing that I'm going to check into too. So I think there's way more here, and sorry for going off on a rant, but there's way more here, and uh, it's just it's horrible that, that people that actually need help are just getting thrown away into the prison system where they can go work for Unicor for a dollar an hour and support the prison industrial complex, which each facility is probably, you know, profiting about 500 million 
you know, just on their Unicor uh, deal. And that's, you know, they're making a dollar an hour working 12 hour shifts, even, even through COVID, even through COVID they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're forcing them to go in there and work, you know, and then they're not letting them program, uh, in the prison. So everything is shut down in these prisons except for the Unicor. So uh, because of COVID-19, well, you know, you can't go to school and you can't go to uh, do all these other things because of social distancing, but you can go work at Unicor because we can't we can't stop that cash cow. We can't stop that. No, 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 no. Your 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 health and any of that other stuff that's associated with it means nothing. You need to go to work. Come on, man. I mean, it's almost obvious that you're 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 slapping people with with huge amounts of time to supply your labor force in the prison. And you're going to get them there for a long time. And you need to keep these people in there for, you know, you need to keep a, a steady supply of, of workers in there because of people that are going home, people that get in trouble while they're in there and end up in the shoe, you know, that's, that's a body you got to replace. So you got to have a, 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 a qualified <laughs> stable of people that can just keep rotating in as, as prisoners, uh, get out. Or they get in trouble and they have to be replaced. So I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe I'm just, I think everything's nefarious, but I've been there. I, you know, I've been to prison. I've been to the federal system. I've, you know, experienced a lot of these stories from even 2004. They were doing this. That's when I first got the, the, the knowledge that they were, were putting people in prison without evidence other than somebody's testimony. Which isn't evidence. That's hearsay. So, anyways, I think I've said enough. Um, this, like I said, this is a great, uh, a great series. And this is, in my opinion, this is going to be, this should be the catalyst that wakes us up and, and, and gets us to, uh, unite as a population against corruption. Uh, hashtag cancel corruption. That's the uh, that's the hashtag that I'm using when anything that I post social media wise that has to do with corruption or 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 calling it out, um, you know. And and until we get rid of the corruption, none of these other things that are happening are going to matter. None of the the Black Lives Matter movement, none of the you know, All Lives Matters movement, none of the mask stuff, none of the you know, none of that's going to matter until we cancel corruption, because. Everything that you see that's that's playing out in the streets, the civil unrest, all of this stuff that's happening are is nothing more than a symptom of corruption and what happens at the bottom when the top gets out of line and they're out of pocket for real. I mean, and it just keeps getting worse and the bigger it gets, the worse it's going to get. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I hope I'm wrong, but strap in man uh it's gonna be a bumpy ride for the next year i hope i'm wrong but i don't think that i am anyways so without further ado let's get to the show but yeah I'm, i guess i'm ready when you guys are if you guys are ready to jump in on this i'm uh let's let's get right in it well well thanks pat and sean for being with me uh, i really appreciate it this is uh gonna be a fun conversation Sean, I was just on your show recently, so it's cool to, to reconnect again, uh, the host of uh, Nowhere to Go But Up. And Patrick, filmmaker, 
the con, the series that nobody quite knows what we're going to talk about quite yet because it's not released yet. So hopefully we can get some attention and get some appeal for the the docu series before it's released. But uh, thanks guys for being with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Totally appreciate it. Well, I heard about your documentary from Sean, and Sean was a a huge fan of it. Told me about it. I started looking into it, watching it, and whatnot. So I, I definitely. I'm a huge fan of documentaries. I mean, it's it's a great way of of watching something entertaining, but yet also thought provoking and informative. And so, I, I, growing up, a huge part of my information came from documentaries. I mean, before podcasts, documentaries were my addiction. And uh, so, I, I'm always really fascinated with new documentaries and new projects or whatnot. So, for people who are listening, who aren't familiar with the con documentary and how you got into it. Cause this is actually a very personal story. This is uh this actually what sparked this was your own personal experience. So how did this all happen? How did you get wrapped up in this, uh, this story and fascinated with uh, this whole, I guess I'll, I'll let you explain what it's about. Well, sure. I appreciate that. And I had a, I had a brief conversation with Sean on the phone the other day and it was pretty exciting because he fully got it and what it's all about. I mean, this is like, this is a multi-part series and for your viewers out there, anybody who is paranoid about conspiracies, anybody who doesn't think that the system adds up to what their experiences are telling them uh, for anybody that has any interest in power, anybody who has any interest in actually how power works uh, either to the benefit or to the detriment of all of us. Um, the con answers these questions and then some, I think it's the most important story of the last 70 years. And not because I'm the filmmaker, it's because it's the truth. Um, we live in a dystopia right now, guys, we live in a place in a time where there's so much massive confusion. There's so much massive distortion. There's so much massive deception. And really we live in an era where the body of investigative journalism is practically dead. Now, a lot of truth definitely lives online in the podcast if you talk to the right people, that how easy is it for people who don't have the facts to go on and talk at length about subjects they don't have any real knowledge of or any actual evidence of? So to get to your original question, um, I've been a producer for a long time. I've been a producer for over two decades. I've worked in Hollywood at Paramount. Pictures and Warner Brothers, and I've been on, I've done productions with some of the biggest names in Hollywood and entertainment and, uh, and uh, film and music and so forth. And that was just kind of my job. I was, I, I was basically a, uh, you know, a go getter, right? I make stuff happen. And, um, and, and that's what I do. And I'm an entrepreneur and I came up, um, you know, decades in the making. I came out of the 80s and I wound up being a professional and, the 90s and you know that thing ran its course and ultimately it ran right into a situation where i was a television producer on a uh, show giving away houses all over the country uh between 2006 and 2008 i had a crew of about 70 people working on this production we'd fly all over the country and we'd find great people with great stories and the idea of the show was to give them houses and it was like a makeover show you know but the the the, the it was calibrated to basically um, it was an extreme home makeover, but it was in the same space. But the reason I tell you all that is very important to the ultimate story. So in 2007, the, the, the executive production team that uh, were paying for this, 
Um, and we were distributed all over the country, um, um, you know, in syndication. So that what that means is we're like WABC in New York City. We're on KCAL in L.A., a variety of other places in Chicago. So we weren't on the same network. But, you know, we were broadcast in major cities and, um, you know, and typically in prime time. So the executive producers of the show were very wealthy. They were out of Seattle. One day they're flying around on Gulfstream jets. The next day in 2007, suddenly they're going bankrupt. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm in a senior position on a television show after like 15 years of being in the business. So I'm a senior guy. I got, like I told you, we've got like 70 people on the broadcast. And, you know, I know how to make deals, by the way. So I put deals together all the time. I know contracts. I understand how, you know, the system is supposed to work, what's legal, what's not, all of those types of things. So I'm not a chump, right? And ultimately, uh, I'm on this television show, and it wasn't the end-all, be-all. It was kind of a means to an end for me. But it enabled me to get into a house with a young family. I was about to be 40 years old at the time. And I owned my first house. It was a nice house. Um, but I got into a mortgage because I was making enough money to pay for the mortgage that was, you know, put in front of me. It seemed like everybody was buying homes at that time. In fact, everybody I knew were at the bars every night bragging about how many houses they flipped, quite frankly. And, uh, I was like, wow, it's a pretty interesting situation, but a lot of it didn't make sense. And suddenly in 2007, this executive production operation that is flying around on Gulfstream jets one day is literally going bankrupt the next. And I'm like, what the fuck, right? So that's the first like, sign of something bad's coming. The next thing I know, uh, I'm literally not pulling in business for about a year. I decided to go off on my own. And uh, I found a partner. It was amazing. I found a partner, a big developer guy, and very rich. And I you know, know a lot of wealthy people because when you do production and you hang out with rock stars and stuff like that, you tend to hang out with wealthy people. And I knew how to put deals together. And so I'm hanging out with this one guy and his name is, it's not important what his name is, but he's a good friend of mine, great guy. And uh, he uh, agreed in principle to a long-term commitment with me as a partner. And I'm about to do the contract and, you know, I get the offer back from him and the ink's not dry. And suddenly it's September 15th, 2008. What does that mean? Lehman Brothers collapse. Next thing I know, all of Wall Street's upside down. My life is going down the drains. Like, I can't even tell you how fast. I'm like going from living six figures, you know, a year to literally nothing overnight because of this process. And suddenly all the money's vanished. Why? Because liquidity's gotten pulled out of the market, right? So I'm watching this stuff like on the edge of my seat, like, what the fuck is going on? And suddenly I get wrapped up in the foreclosure crisis. And what I mean by that is I get notices of foreclosure. I'm dealing with servicers at the time. I'm watching everybody on television trying to figure out what's going on. And nobody is speaking to my experience. None of it makes sense. And again, I know business. I know how deals are made. I think I understand our system. And yet nothing makes sense. The Obama administration run, um, rides a wave of uh, a people's mandate, really, to kind of clean up all the what we thought at the time was all of the uh, – the market, the machinery. And uh, as it turns out, Obama puts the same people in positions of power in his cabinet that had created this train wreck that destroyed my life in 2008. Now, I don't know any of that at the time. I'm just picking pieces out left and right, right? So one thing leads to another. This tsunami, this avalanche, this incredible economic maelstrom comes and wipes me out, right? Now, incidentally, a lot of 
your listeners are probably in the same exact position right now because we're about to go off the cliff again, but we'll get to that eventually. So I get spit out in the desert. You know, I feel like I'm naked. I've got my family on my back. I'm trying to find refuge in ways to figure this out. There's nowhere to turn. It's like it's over, right? So I end up walking up Little Cottonwood Canyon. I live in Utah, and I'm about to cash it in. We have a statement in Utah, uh, in any place where they ski and snowboard. When you send it, that means you drop, you fly off a cliff. You're going to catch huge air. That's just part of our terminology, you know, vernacular. And I got up there, and my life was over. I was in, you know, six inches of tossing myself off a 500-foot cliff because nothing made sense. And I don't know how serious I was, but my life had ended up to that point. And I was almost 40 years old at the time, to give you an idea how long this process has been. And uh, and I sat up on top of the cliff, man, and I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to find out what happened. I'm going to figure this out. And this many years later, I did. And it's the largest criminal conspiracy and conspiracy of lies and cover-up in history. And we've got it with factual evidence of who did what, when, and how, and how this whole thing fits. And that's what the con is. Yeah. That's- yeah. Well, <laughs> well, the, the, you talk, brought up Obama. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the email that told, you know, they had a suggestions on who to put on your cabinet. It was all like Goldman Sachs people and whatnot. And uh, I think it was from somebody from Goldman Sachs who said, hey, you should put these people on your cabinet. And then almost exactly as that list of suggestions uh, the same people were on his cabinet. It was, you know, he basically are run by the bankers and they're all run by the bankers. I mean, the bankers control throughout history. They've controlled everything. I mean, it's, you've got it. You've got it right. You got it right. But, well, but you know, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to pick no, up your point. So imagine, right. Imagine like the ultimate criminal syndicate. Let's just talk about the Gotti's or, you know, any of those five major crime bosses in, in, in New York during the seventies and all of the, you know, the, the machinations of the power of the mob and all the stuff that they'd been into forever, really. Right. And how they operate. Imagine those guys literally somehow working it to where a, they get their guys at the head of the DOJ and B their guys at the head of the SEC in the office of the Comptroller. So all of the top guys that are basically working for the big money to make sure the big money doesn't get taken down. And who's the big money in this instance? You just said it, right? The banks, right? Mm-hmm. But, but the banks ultimately, and this is a key consideration, they're made up of people. So it's the banks not uh, committing crimes. It's literally bankers committing crimes well that's the thing that bothers me about like this idea of like oh corporations are people until you commit a crime then it's like hey you can't sue us and the corporation doesn't exist anymore it's like how ridiculous is that i thought you guys were people then you should be able to go to jail just like people do it's it's obviously a, a giant loophole i mean banks i mean prescott bush uh, got uh, in trouble with the Trading with the Enemy Act because he was yeah. doing deals with the Nazis. I mean, this you go throughout history, the bankers could care less about ideologies, morals, uh, and not just that, debt is a extremely strong tool because you Absolutely. put somebody in debt and especially, I mean, look at college, for example. You put a kid in debt, you just get out of college, you have all this debt. Oh, wow, you got a high-paying job, but you're in the hole, you know, six figures, so who gives a shit? You know, you, you're not going to be in the positive for a long time, which means you're stuck at that shitty job. You have no flexibility to move. 
uh, pursue a different career, all the stuff they have, you buy the balls. And, and that's the thing that like, you know, they give, uh, I know parents all the time who say this, they're like, my kids in college, they have no liquid funds and I'm getting uh, pre-approved credit cards in the mail for my child. And it's like, why? And I'll, I'm like, because they want you to be in debt. No kid is making great decisions in their teens and, and early twenties. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I didn't make any good decisions in my teens, early twenties. And it's, it, it, you're, and it's, the, they know what they're doing. They're putting you in debt and then you're stuck in this cycle of, you know, uh, of, pay, you know, this job you hate, you pay, you buy some material things that make you happy. That's temporary. And then you're, you know, and then you go back to your shitty job and you create some more debt and you go back to your shitty job. And, and, and it really, it, it can ruin people's life. And, and, yeah, I mean, it, so your story, I think, touches uh, a lot of people. You said that you lost everything. What specifically was it the fact? Because during the, the housing crisis in '08, a big thing was like, hey, these are your payments, monthly payments. And all of a sudden, like that bank, you know, overnight doesn't even own that loan anymore. And next thing you know, your payments and interest went sky high and you can't afford it anymore. Is that something that happened to you? Well, so to speak, yeah, but not so much me as I've learned about all of those things as this incredible journey, um, you know, unwound, quite frankly. And that was the whole purpose was to unwind what became a crime. I had no idea what I was getting myself into at the time. But everything you said is spot on, by the way. And I love that that quote by George Cullen, they, George, George Carlin, they've got you by the balls. And yes, it is engineered. But so to the people out there that are like, yeah, but it's fucking debt, man. You get into a contract, you take out you know, loans, they're doing you, you know, good. So you got to pay the loans back. Don't take, don't get into business that you shouldn't do. And should, I mean, that's upon you as a, as a responsible citizen to not get in over your head. That's what they say, right? Well, okay, great. I can buy all that, but there's a bunch of different ways we can, we can, you know, uh, uh, decouple all the stuff, but let's just start with the basics based on your question to me. A, I was that guy, right? They had me over a barrel. <laughs> I had the six figures. I'm into a new house. I got the family. You need the income, right? And so when all of that went away, it was like, oh my God, my life is over. That's the American dream, right? I mean, at least that's what I was thinking I was living in at the moment. And it became my American nightmare. But, um, you know, to further that point though, um, in terms of what it, what it led to and what I lost and, and, and how that motivated me, um, you know, again, like, like I come from the nineties, right? So these nineties, but two films really set this up in, in terms of my, my thought process. The first was the usual suspects when Kevin Spacey declared the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince the world he didn't exist. Couple that with Denzel Washington and devil in a blue dress, uh, when he was playing Ezekiel Rollins. And he said, I got tired of them pissing on my head, telling me it was rain. They must've thought I was some kind of new fool. So what I had to deconstruct, right, is we believe that we live in a nation of laws. We know that there's these institutions. There's the FBI. There's the SEC. There's the Department of Justice. There's a smorgasbord of alphabet soup acronyms that are regulators that are supposed to prevent what I was in the midst of, right? But as it turns out, they didn't act. Now, why could that possibly be? Because they were a part of it. Is that hard to believe? Not, not now. Considering everything that I've know and everything that I've seen and where I've been, I. I but you know where I think the the problem does lie, though, is that people don't understand what our how our system actually works. There you go. 
You know what I mean? And things that I've been watching from, you know, modern uh, monetary theory and, you know, Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Ginter um, and also Peter Schiff, um, you know, what he's been talking about. I just recently watched the uh, the uh, show on uh, what the the Rogan, his episode. And uh, where did he go? Oh, you still there, Pat? Yeah, guys, I just had to get up to close my window because there was some. Oh, okay. Noise. Yeah, and oh, and, and on the Rogan one. So I mean, it's really what I I I'm coming to the conclusion that I don't know <clears throat> shit about how our system works and what the debt and and how it actually you know printing money in the fiat currency system uh, and how it's designed. I mean, I just I got a crash course this morning at two o'clock in the morning uh, watching uh, uh, that uh, Peter Schiff explain it. And it, you know, and I, I watched Jeffries, and dude, well, we, I'll uh, give well, you some good document, some good documentaries to check out. James <clears throat> Corbett's Century of Enslavement, which is, uh, you know, I mean, the title is a great title because that's what we're talking about. Debt really does enslave you. And, yeah. and then, and then also, uh, you look at uh, Ben Dyson wrote a good book on it. He's from the UK. Uh, he he's been on my show. He talks about how, it, and then the Zeitgeist Addendum. The begin the the beginning of it, they really focus on, and this was like you know some influential uh, documentaries in my life was the Zeitgeist uh, uh, movement and some right. of those uh, documentaries. That documentary breaks down exactly how banks just print money that does not exist, and they they you know, and you can get into this pat be- Actually, much the, better. The, not the, banks the banks don't pr- pr- uh, they don't print the money. Well, not print money. I'm sorry. What I mean is they loan out money. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, they loan out money that doesn't exist. Yeah. And see. So you guys touched upon something that's incredibly important. You know what you know, right? And so I'm a college graduate guy. And that's what I was trying to paint out before. You know, I come up, I'm a professional. I work at Warner Brothers and Paramount, wind up being a senior producer. I mean, I, I was by all you know markings relatively successful. Trust me, I wanted to be a lot more successful. But the bottom line was I got played by the system. And the reason being is because in the end, guys, this is a crime story, Okay. This is a crime story of massive, massive volumes, right? This is like gazillions of times bigger than Watergate. This is gazillions bigger than anything that we've ever come to wrap our heads around because nobody did the work, particularly from the institutions. They did to cover it up, and I'll get to that in a minute, but also the media who could never even tie their shoelaces together. So there's been a potpourri of stuff that happened on the 2008 financial crisis, right? Some better than others. I think most people know the film, The Big Short. The Big Short actually did, I think, a very nice job of trying to uncouple uh, or decouple a lot of the issues that made up the story. But one weird reality is that it's categorized as a comedy. There's nothing you know, comedic about 16 million people losing their homes and what this thing led to with hundreds of millions of people that were impacted through pension loss and so much of uh, the system rotted to the core. But what we need to be able to let everybody understand in this world. And in fact, I know from talking to you, um, you know, uh, Sam, that or Sean is the, uh, the nature of criminality, right? So if you know, for example, let's say you've got a wife that you have, you're suspicious that's cheating on you. There's a completely different mindset of thinking she might be and trying to read things that you don't have evidence on and then actually having the evidence, right? So we go from the situation of common knowledge to specific knowledge. And that's always the case, whether it's Harvey Weinstein and a two decades long, him getting away with systemic 
you know, rape or Epstein for that matter, two decades of that. In the end, there's a trail, right? And so those guys like Epstein and Weinstein, for example, it goes forever until it's busted because of the critical mass of people that were like, what the fuck? This needs to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. So why is it up to the people in critical mass to, to embarrass the, the, the people in power to take these things down until it's like decades in the making? Well, you could take the same sort of uh, scope with our story, but multiply it by trillions. Because in the end, what we do is, and it's a miracle, through a tragedy. So we break this up. Like, this is how long we've been in the mix making this this story. So do you guys remember a um, a crime series investigation on HBO called Robert The Life and Death of Robert Durst? Did you guys ever come across that? I know the title. I don't. I don't think I've ever watched it. Yeah, I don't think so. so. I'll, I'll give you a thumbnail of it. So this thing came out. I think. Let's see. We're 2020 now. It must have been around 2015. And my partners and I at the time were like, okay, you can't fit the immensity of the story that we found in the con that we unraveled into one 60 minute or 90 minute documentary. It's impossible. You have to understand how all of these pieces of this giant puzzle fit together to get to the point that Sean made earlier. You know what you know. So you got to be informed. You got to you got to really go on the journey to understand what this is all about. But most people aren't documentary uh, people like yourself, uh, Ricardo, from the sense that they want to learn. A lot of people want to be entertained, right? So you got this kind of convergence, and it's 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 a bit of a dilemma. But as investigative journalism was dying in print because of the way commercial products work, and there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on with that. But suddenly there was this revolution in television. With long-form investigation, uh, investigation starting with this show called uh, "The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst." It was about a guy who was a real estate developer, huge, rich guy in Manhattan, who ended up chopping up a bunch of people to hide from crimes he was involved with, and he got away with it until the show was able to lay it all out. And then eventually, the DAs who were involved with it got new evidence and put this guy away. In our particular case, what we realized was. We had the story initially because when I pulled the thread and, and because I'm an investigator and because I come from the 80s and 90s and I watch films like Oliver Stone and, you know, all of these others, I'm, I'm suspicious enough to know when I'm getting played, my metaphor earlier, right? And nothing was adding up, particularly in media. So I started going to the sources that did make sense, right? So I started asking whistleblowers, okay, wait a second. I saw your, you mentioned in this Matt Taibbi article, and you're talking about this, but it seems like there's a lot more. What can you tell me? So suddenly I'm getting the full diatribe, right? That doesn't appear in print. Now suddenly I find that that whistleblower connects to another whistleblower. Oh, now I got two big pieces of the puzzle. Now that makes sense. What else is there, right? So then suddenly it becomes this constantly opening up the doors and finding out more and more information that you find out was covered up or because they're whistleblowers, the CEOs and the HR departments did the exact same thing they did with Weinstein and Epstein. They buried it, and they basically took out the people who had the information. Same in this story, except fortunately for me, these guys are all alive. Now, we had that story initially, and we went to Showtime, for example, and we pitched them on the whistleblower stories. And they're like scratching their head, and they're like, ah, you know, I don't think so. <clears throat> Go to Alex Gibney. See if Alex Gibney will executive produce it, and then maybe we'll talk, right? So I go to Alex Gibney. He's one of my heroes. He's one of the greatest you know, documentarians of all time. And I go with him with this mammoth, mammoth discovery, huge information that you would think a guy like uh, Gibney would be all over. Yeah, he's like, maybe we could put him in like one episode of Dirty Mind. I'm like, no, it's way bigger than that. So we pass, whatever, we move on. 
And one thing leads to another in my, my partner, he discovers the crazy story. He discovers this crazy story of a woman. She's a 91-year-old African-American widow. She lives in a town called Akron, Ohio, the Northeast. And she's lived in her house for five decades. She actually got into that house because both she, she and her husband, Robert, came from the agrarian south out of Jim Crow. So they migrated to the industrial north uh, Midwest to where they could get jobs. He ends up working in the rubber plant um, and uh, the car industry. He saves enough money. They buy the home outright. Five decades later, on a horrible day in September of 2008, the whole economy is imploding. The sheriff shows up at the door, knocks on the door to evict her from the house that she believes she owned. She said she'd been calling the sheriff's office because she'd been getting notices of foreclosure and she didn't understand why she owned her house. She didn't understand why they were coming. And then they came to evict her after her trying desperately to prevent that from happening. And she had two choices, go in the streets homeless at the age of 91 or do what she did, which was take a gun to her chest. And she shot herself in the chest five times. She didn't die right away from that, believe it or not, but she ended up dying about six months later from those gun wounds. I can't believe it when I think about it. It's just like, how do you not die from shooting yourself in the chest five times? They, we've got the forensic evidence of her um, you know, bullet, th- bullet holes through her chest, her shoulder, and so forth. But she survived, and then she died um, um, uh, six months later. But here's the thing. Out of this tragedy, she was a miracle. So through this Pandora's box, my colleague and I, this guy, Alex Tennant, who's an associate producer of mine, we were trying to get the sheriff because, you know, when you recreate uh, stuff for documentaries, you got to make it cinematic. So we wanted to talk to the, 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 the sheriff that arrived on the scene that was actually that day there evicting her. He didn't want to talk about it. We had to go uh, be just relentless in finally convincing him to go on camera. And he did. And I got to give all credit to my associate producer. It's a miracle that he did it. I'll, I'll remember the day. It was like cloudy. It was like one of those like, you know, investigations. It was raining. And I remember him because we, we had exhausted all the opportunities to get this guy on camera and he wouldn't do it. And finally, we just went to his door. My colleague banged on the door and just gave him this huge story up front of why he had to be on camera. So he reluctantly said, fine, I agree. We shoot this interview with this guy. And after I asked him all of these questions, he's like, oh, my God. He's like, you guys have got to talk to some people I know. So through him, I discovered this task force that was put together by the former attorney general of Ohio. And they were studying all of these crimes in that vicinity, which were a pandemic at the time. And suddenly I find out. And this is what's so crazy. My my colleague, my 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 partner on this project forever, this guy who's the director, when we started this project several years earlier, he said, why wasn't this indicted or convicted under RICO? Which is, of course, racketeering and corrupt influences, right? This is what was made for the mob. And we were like, yeah, that's that's it. Why why didn't they do that? Right? That was our question. So one thing leads to another in this miracle through this tragedy, we find this task force got a RICO conviction for these crimes that were small levels of what was happening nationally, okay? So what we found was the same crime that Ohio convicted of RICO, because there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle, 
were the exact same model that was happening nationwide, except the Department of Justice didn't take the CEOs out of Wall Street on RICO, did they? Mm-mm. Do you see uh, a, a bit of a, a, a peculiar question? Why would it be possible to convict small level players, but not the heavies? Because those were the ones that were supposed to get sacrificed to uh, to satisfy the need, and the other people were were uh, let go. That's what it seems because, like to me. Because they own the system. Yeah. So, you know, like, so this is a crime investigation. Everybody's in on it. Yeah. Okay, so you guys probably know that in finance or if you're going to buy a house or a car or a student loan, there's different pieces of the puzzle. The way it works with home loan is you typically have a mortgage lender. And that mortgage lender is tied to a bank that lends, right? Some sort of financial institution. But in between, you have um, appraisers that give the appraisal of the home. And then you have um, uh, underwriters that work for the banks. And all of that process is a stopgap to, A, make sure that the home is the value that you're asking or in the vicinity based on all sorts of calculations in the industry. And B, that loans aren't going to get made that aren't good loans, right? So in the old days, the banks that were providing loans, like when we think about the loans um, you know, of the 50s and the 60s, you think of like a a white guy in his suit and he's like giving a loan and everybody wants, you know, how magical is it to get that loan? You can get in your house, you can build your wealth, but most of that is predicated because you've got an income, right? And so you're a good risk for that bank. And when that bank loans you the money and everybody else, the money, they're doing it because you're a good risk because they know you can pay that loan back because they're going to carry you for 30 years or 40 years, right? That's the idea. That's not the world we live in now. And it hasn't been since really the late nineties, maybe quite frankly, a lot before that, but in terms of how it works, because like you said, so aptly pointed out, Sean, there's so many different pieces of the puzzle because you have the way people get loans, but that's got to be funded from somewhere, right? In this particular case, it's funded by Wall Street banks. They provided warehouse loans to all of these lenders all over the country. So there were all of these lenders, what we call shadow banks, like Countrywide Bank or AmeriQuest or Greenpoint Capital. They were all over the place. I'm not sure where you guys are located, but like in California, AmeriQuest and Countrywide were everywhere. I remember. But they're, not they're, they, they, they're lending institutions to basically get as many loans in the pipeline. And then they basically give those to investment banks. And all of these stopgaps are in between. So on top of like the people I've already mentioned, then you get into the situation where you have rating agencies. So millions of these loans were packaged into what we call tranches. And then they were sold upstream to Wall Street. And that means that they were sold to pension funds. So pension funds like, let's say, the fire department, the police department, the, the, the school teachers association, you know, Ford Motor Company, all of those pensions are what we call institutional investors. And they're investing in a whole variety of potential investments that are supposed to have great returns. Now, at that time, nobody would have ever banked against the American home market. That was like the golden goose, right? Nobody got into a mortgage that they couldn't afford to pay back, and nobody would ever lend to somebody that they wouldn't pay back. But that all changed because it became about fees. It became about maximization of getting as many loans in the pipeline to send upstream to these pensions that supposedly had so much return and it's all built on quarters. So the money's churning. People are like, 
okay, I got houses. I'm into a house. I'm flipping a house. I'm doing this and that. Is that the same thing if you're living, working in a factory for 40, 40 years and you're in the same place forever? Are you a similar risk, do you guys think? No, I would. So if you got rid of the golden goose, which is, of course, the manufacturing uh, you know, part of the economy, mm-hmm. and people had jobs and they had longevity and they, they had value and they owned their homes and so forth, if you get into a Ponzi scheme and you're flipping things, is what we ultimately get into, you're going to train wreck the whole thing. But it's all predicated on fees, right? So the broker's getting a fee. The appraiser's getting a fee. The lender's getting a free. The underwriter's getting a free. Then the ratings agencies that are packaging up all those loans for Goldman Sachs, they're getting a fee. But they're all getting a fee to look the other way and to get the worst product in as fast as possible, and they all know it's going to blow. But they're all passing it along the way because as long as they get paid, they don't care what happens downstream. So eventually, this whole thing, because in the derivatives market, which is upstream, so for example, in in 1998, we had a $13 trillion derivatives market globally. And there's a lot of commodities that go into these things and people bet different ways and they can hedge bets and yada, yada, yada. By the time you get to the 2008 financial crisis, it's $600 trillion in the derivatives market. It went on, it exploded exponentially. And it was all predicated on this housing market. And then people stopped, started not paying their mortgages because they never should have got those mortgages to begin with. Or they got sold some sort of adjustable arm or they were set up for failure. And that's a whole other story. But eventually the whole thing collapses, right? And so the government has to kind of implode on itself. And there was this famous meeting between our former Treasury Secretary, John Paulson, who came from Goldman Sachs. In fact, his predecessor, Robert Rubin, came from Goldman Sachs and he was Treasury Secretary for Clinton. And then Paulson came from Goldman Sachs and was Treasury Secretary Toward what? You see the pattern? Doesn't matter who's in the presidency, what party they come from, Goldman Sachs is in control, right? And so, you know, there's been articles about government Sachs. But in this particular case, so <laughs> Goldman was up to its eyeballs in this stuff, right? So when everything crashed, they were going bankrupt. Now, understand this that's part of the plan. So remember, we said at the very beginning that, um, you know, we blame banks all the time. It's not banks, it's bankers particularly the CEOs. So the fish rots from the head, and this is all called control fraud. So what they do is it's all built on the short term. It's all built on this giant Ponzi scheme of sawdust, and they're getting paid billions. And if they can walk out or loot, it doesn't matter. The institution's going to fail. They get their money. But in this particular case, in capitalism, we're supposed to have creative destruction, right? So if you do stuff that you're making bad business decisions that are going to lead to it exploding – well, eventually you go bankrupt, right? Is that what happened to the two big to fail Wall Street banks after the great financial crisis? No. No. We were told that the government was going to have to circle the wagons and pony up $750 billion of emergency fees, which was called the Trade Troubled Assets Relief Program to save the system. Guys, <laughs> that was a drop in the bucket compared to what these cats got away with. We ended up, the Federal Reserve pumped. trillion into the system that created this gargantuan wipeout, and we never had any prosecutions. $29 trillion was the icing on the cake that came from the Federal Reserve to backstop criminal enterprises. It's insanity. And this is why we live in the system we live in today. The same thing is happening right now. 
And then doesn't take that, that kind of go into, you know, the governments keep bailing people out and, and kicking the, kicking the can down the road instead of letting the free market, you know, just cancel them out if they're, if they're bad actors. Right. And then, so does that, does that kind of play into where we're, where we are and where we are going? Because if, you know, I've listened to a lot of people and they, and their, their advice is, is get ready, get ready for it. Start preparing because it's. John, you're, you're awesome about that because here's the story, right? The economy crashed in 2019, just so you know. We had to put up uh, – the Federal Reserve had to pony up $7 trillion to back up uh, what we call repo, overnight lending, to backstop the commercial run in the commercial market. Now, by the way, in 2008, that was the exact same thing that happened. And by the way, it happened for a reason. That was the big short. So did you guys see the big short? Yeah. Yeah. So you remember the hedge funds were betting, they realized none of these things that people were investing had sustainability. So they started shorting the market. So the real story is those guys were thumbnails uh, to the big play. Goldman Sachs was beyond comprehension into this whole thing. Okay. And by the way, they were vertical. So they owned all the bad originators. They owned all the bad elements that I told you about. And then they were selling to their pensions and they were shorting the pensions. Okay. So let's just say they had central states, which is all these teamsters from around this, you know, like now what is Trump country, right? So you've got the guys from Ohio and Kentucky and everything else that are the guys that are loading the coal, that are in the mines, that are doing whatever. And they're, they're you know, transitioning it all over the country for delivery. Those guys, their pensions after four decades, right, are in the hands of Goldman Sachs and they're shorting the market. They know it's going to blow and get a little of this. How do they know it's going to blow? Because they're handpicking the tranches that are going to be in the worst of the worst tranches based on the worst of the worst loans that they know is going to blow. So they set everybody up to blow and they're going to pick it up on the shorts, right? That's what they did. That's what you can do when you're the house. Mm -hmm. They're the house, okay, in this particular case. And they're not the only ones. There's many others. But going back to where Henry Paulson was, and I, and I guess I could conclude this part of the story this way. Henry Paulson was the CEO of Goldman Sachs. The guy becomes secretary of treasury. He goes to the banks without George Bush. Bush doesn't know how any of this stuff is working. And he goes and he makes him sign a three-page letter saying, you're going to accept everything I tell you to do, and it's going to work out for you. Don't ask questions. He says this to all the banks because they don't know how bad the derivatives play is, right? And ultimately, he ends up giving them $29 trillion. Now, this happens over the course of time within the, the Obama administration, but what ultimately happened is that, and this will probably blow your minds. Well, actually, let me, let me before I get into this, I want to ask you guys a question. What is your knowledge of what happened in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis? Do you think government did any investigations into this? No, of course not. <laughs> they, they, uh, it's a revolving door. It's governments. And this is the thing is like, you know, and, I, and I've said this a lot on the show, pe people on the left think corporations are the root of all evil people on the right think uh government's the root of all evil and they don't realize they're all in bed together and it's one of the same yeah. and, and what's that called if they're above the law um i'm not sure well, tyranny what? okay oh tyranny uh, yes of course yes let me give you a quote it came from john this guy frederick bastiat he came out of uh 17th century france before the revolution and he said when a group of men in society discover plunder for power, they create a legal system that authorizes it and a, a moral code that glorifies it. Does that seem kind of like where we are? Mm -hmm. So so you, you have this system. So to answer my question to you, and, and this is what's so amazing because of how big it was. Yes, indeed, the government actually did a 9-11-like uh, 
investigation. It was called the Federal Crisis Inquiry Commission. It had over a thousand witnesses. It lasted for a year. It was bipartisan. And it ended up with 11 criminal referrals. We have on camera the guy who was the head of the so-called bipartisan commission. And they did 11 criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. And what he tells us on camera is that we thought this was just the beginning after everything I just told you. He said, this is Phil Angelides from California. We thought this was just the beginning. The Department of Justice buried it under Eric Holder. By the way, where was Eric Holder before and after um, his involvement in the, in the attorney, attorney general? And, and to your point, Ricardo, where what was where was so I'm, talk, I'm talking fast and I apologize. There's a lot Sorry. of information. <laughs> like Eric Holder, the Department of Justice, the head of the Department of Justice under the Obama administration, came out of um, um, uh, a white shoe law firm. Uh, oh, I was about to say Sullivan and Cromwell, but it's uh, God. I can't believe it. I talk about it all the time. I'll bring I'll bring it up again in a moment. He came out of one of the top white shoe law firms in the nation, right? who were actually up to their eyeballs defending these financial institutions. And then after he leaves the Department of Justice, he goes right back to his job, but at a much higher rate. He got paid big time for protecting Wall Street. So to your point, it's a racket. Yeah. What are you going to do when the institutions are filled with the guys that are working for the people that are defrauding everybody? Were you thinking of Covington and Burling? I was. Thank you for that. Yes. Covington yeah. and Burling. That's exactly right. And I can't believe I couldn't read because it's because get a load of this. Covington and Burling is equidistant between Congress and the White House, inter- interestingly enough, their offices. And they have been since the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the thing is, the banks have so much power. I mean, you look at, at banks, Wall Street. I mean, look what happened to Elliot Spitzer, right? I mean, why did he get busted? He got in trouble. I mean, that whole story was basically because he was actually giving Wall Street a hard time. Yes. I actually had one That's of the... I had one of the women that was actually involved in that uh, on my show. Uh, she wrote a book about it, about, you know, she got investigated and all this other stuff interviewed by uh, FBI and whatnot. But uh, it was obviously like they were just trying to shut them up. It's like, no, I mean, this, our systems and that's the problem with with our system. It's like you can't just remove one bad apple because the whole system's fucked. Like and and. And and that's the that's the biggest problem is that I mean, I've had Jack Abramoff on my show. I mean, oh, it's hilarious. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I and it's it's hilarious because he's exposing the same system that he he obviously profited from and whatnot. But I I had him on afterwards when he got out of prison because I and he wrote his book because I think that somebody who's in the inside who actually is willing to discuss how these laws and these rules, the loopholes with you know with everything and how everybody kind of yeah. knows the loopholes and all. Yeah. I mean, he had a company that was uh that could make products that was uh made in america quote and unquote uh but it was off a uh it was off the coast of america it's a little island but didn't right. have to it didn't have any of the labor laws of america mm-hmm. but yet because it was a a, a property of america you could put on the product made in America. And, you know, everybody knew what was going on. And then so there was some conversation about it. They sent some politicians there to go see, like, what was going on, investigate. What do they do? They sent them to a five star resort where they golfed and all this stuff came back and said, no, everything's fine there. I don't see any sweatshops, you know, and it's like and that's that's the system like the lobbyists write the bills most of the time. The the language in the bills are like, here, 
you know, here, here's the language. Just put it in there. We'll make sure we get you some money. You know, don't worry about it. I mean, that's why you see during some of these debates where people will bring something up and said, hey, you sponsored this bill or you whatever. And a lot of times you're like, you know, if they're quoting language in the bill, they look like they don't even they've never even read it because usually they don't. They don't read it. They don't even know what the fuck they're they're approving or, or not approving. There's a, a a great podcaster. She's been on my show a few times called uh, Jen Brimey. And she um she has a show called Congressional Dish. And she literally reads everything and, and, and will dissect it. And, she, you know, she's, she's said this over and over again. You can see the way people are going to vote on bills just by looking at who's giving the money. They're like, it's almost consistent every time. You know, it's, it's so it's so transparent now, though, right? I mean, because, OK, so let me let me back up. First of all, I love your come from on all of this stuff. I mean, my gosh, Abramoff. Holy shit. Alex Kimney did an amazing uh, film on Abramoff. The United States of uh, Abramoff, actually. And then um, he also Casino did Casino Jack. Yeah, Casino Jack. And then he yeah. also did he also did uh, Client Nine, which was uh, Spitzer. Yeah, so we, Spitzer's. Yeah, yeah. Spitzer, and Spitzer just spells it out. And he spells it out with three letters other people's money, OPP. If you can work with other people's money and build these LLCs, and you were talking about offshoring and outsourcing, that is definitely part of it. Now, we've done that stuff going back. Got what to the seventies, probably maybe eighties, and it's gotten worse. And so that that drives home what we we reveal to the world. The whole thing is what we call desupervision, decriminal the three D's, deregulation. Sorry, desupervision and decriminalization. And what does that mean, really? In a nutshell, it means that there is no law above the line. And if you're going to steal, steal big, right? But what America doesn't know, like we went back to – because we keep getting played this over and over. I mean a lot of these – so the great financial crisis of what we're talking about is literally the third act of what was the SNL crisis in the early 90s, late 80s, right? Except the difference in those two particular cases was the savings and loan crisis was much more complicated because it was commercial real estate. But the regulators led by a gentleman by the name of William K. Black, who became our mentor in this. And it's a miracle that we found him in this process, but he led us to understand how you put together what's known as a criminal referral. So we got to understand, and this is how we built our show, how you're able to get the evidence, put it together, and then create a criminal conviction. And they're called uh, criminal referrals. And in the case of the SNL crisis, Bill did 30,000, well, his team, 30,000 criminal referrals to get over a thousand high level white collar fraudsters, including the biggest bankruptcy in the United States at the time, a guy by the name of uh, Keating, who bought several senators, to your point at that time, including McCain. There were five senators at the time, the Keating Five is what they called them. And, uh, you know, these senators were protecting these uh, uh, corrupt bankers. Now, interesting enough, and I'll, and I'll mention this because I know you guys know about Epstein and the rest. You know what these guys did back then with senators uh, to be able to, to 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 coerce control? They'd invite them to parties in Miami and Las Vegas, get them all hide up on cocaine and with hookers and get it on video of them cheating on their spouses so that they knew how to control these cats when it came time to not let the regulators bust them. William K. Black worked through all of that, nailed a thousand of them, and that was for a crime that was one 180th the size of the 2008 Great Financial Crisis, which sent zero people to prison. Although there was actually two people that went to prison. One was a, uh, a Chinese banker that 
uh, was in Manhattan, who was like a fall guy. And of course he wasn't part of the crew and on the inside. <laughs> and, then, and then there was some other, you know, small level type stuff, but um, um, you know, none of the big guys went down. In fact, as we showcase in our, our show, especially when you get into episodes four, Jamie Dimon met with uh, president Obama 22 times while the justice department was investigating him. That's never been heard of. That's like Al Capone going to meet with, with who took out, who took down, I mean, it was, um, who was the great uh, investigator back then for Al Capone? I can't think of his name. Oh my God. It's on the top. Elliot of Ness. Head. Elliot Ness, right? That's like, you know, that's like those guys getting together. So our other partner always describes to me, imagine, cause this is all just corruption guys. It's not rocket science. You just have to have the, who did what, when, and how, and who let him get away with it because they run the shop. They run the show. That's what we're all in the midst of. I feel like we're on a 747 that's about to go freaking down hard because they're going to collect insurance on it. You know what I mean? That's the scheme. As long as these guys can, you know, fuck the brakes up, fuck all the tapestry up, they're going to let everybody go through the, the facade of a fictional economy, and then they blow it up. Why? Because they got the keys to the Federal Reserve. That's about to get blown up again. It has been since September. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy, and, and you know, and to the to to that point, um, of all the people that that Ricky's mentioned, uh, that's exactly why I wanted him to watch this and interview you because he's got a bigger platform than I do, and I'm a why little not? fish. I'm a little fish in this game, right? And uh, I just recently, you know, found Ricky, but I I knew that he had. Uh, uh, some, you know, he talked to people and he knows people that, you know, if he, if he were able to see it and, and was as excited about it as I am, and I've actually watched it three whole times looking for inconsistencies wow. and, 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 well, uh, us. I, I, I got to hear what you have to say about it. Well, no, I, I just, it was how, the reason why I felt it was Wait, so let, much. Let everybody know how many hours this is. What, to, to put okay. That's 18, 18 hours. <laughs> It's a, it's about eighteen hours. The screener is, and and uh, well, and it's six hours. Cocaine? How much cocaine did you need? To, not, to not, none watch? at all. I don't I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, a compliment a filmmaker could never have. You didn't need cocaine to get through eighteen hours. <laughs> no. Well, because it was done in such a way that that uh, you know the first time around, it was done in such a way that that I could I could picture myself. As you know, uh, since I'm in a uh, I'm in a, a labor union, I'm a, a mechanical insulator by trade. I I could really resonate with uh, with the iron workers, right? And and that those that's me, or that could have been me, you know. And and yeah, and so it was really easy for me to identify with with people and the victims, especially Addie Addie Polk, because that my grandmother you know died at 92. You know, and wow. she was exactly like that, you know, that she could have been her. And so it made it really relatable. And and the fact that it points out everything that we think of, you know, it just like in like in, in a flippant way. Oh, yeah, it's, shit's rigged or, you know, yeah, it's corrupt. But it, it just it, it goes as like, OK, it comes in and goes out, you know, as if it's like the normal like like the new norm. Right. Because we don't have any way of of knowing how the actual game is played and and, and carried Absolutely. out. Absolutely, that's and, it. That this is music to my ears. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, and so once once it all kind of got put together, 
And then, you know, through the process of me, like, taking charge of this and going, dude, I want to get this in front of Rogan. This, this is exactly what he, he, you know, Bill Black is the dude that he would like to talk to. Because he's, he answers he, everything he's been asking questions about since I've been watching him and yeah. everybody else because media has failed. The yeah. question you got to ask yourselves is, and I'm, I'm, I want you to tell me more, but I just got to make this point real quick. Why didn't the New York Times lay this out like we talked about Russiagate, right? Yeah. Every day there was an echo chamber about, okay, what did Trump do? And I, I still, you know, that's it's a different story, but, you know, Trump is Trump and, and that's a whole set of other problems, right? But I will tell you this. I do have to tell you this. President Trump sues Deutsche Bank in 2012. The reason he sues them is, first of all, they're the only ones that could give him loans. And you, you could, if you read a book called Dark Towers by David Einrich, it spells out that, you know, the stuff that he and Putin were involved with are relatively small compared to what they were doing, which is the story we're telling. Basically, uh, and, and they just got fined $150 million for their link to uh to help uh launder money with jeffrey epstein there so, you go right yeah. right and, and so they're, 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 what they're involved with is just ginormous all over the world probably 50 degrees of wrong that we can't even imagine right but in this book i read and i couldn't believe this in fact we're in contact with this guy right now who's from the new york times david onrick and i hope he blasts it to the world but to your point about Addie polk and i told you guys the story up front of how she was targeted the industry targeted her they stole her house of five decades she didn't get into a loan that she knew about it. She was a victim of what we call straw buying. That's another part of the scam that we're going to relate. Well, you saw it in episode two, yeah. actually, which is a whole nother can of – they go into churches, literally. They go into churches and they find elderly women who own their homes that they would take their uh, information. They get their social security and they'd forge their signatures to get loans in their names to go to guys that were fronting up as them that had no – that they were moving this stuff so fast. So – Addie didn't know what the heck was going on. And so she ends up killing herself. And so that's a victim of predatory lending. Do, can we all agree to that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, do, is, it, is there any problem with my setup there? Do, do, would anybody doubt me saying she is a victim of predatory lending? No, absolutely. she absolutely yeah. is. So get a load of this. President Trump sues Deutsche Bank for being a victim of predatory lending in 2012 and one. <laughs> well, there, 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 there is the difference there, um, you know, and I think that, you know, the whole reason, you know, things, things have to line up to go viral, right? It, not everything. You have to be the right people to find it, the right, the right story, the right message to get behind, the right everything. The stars have to align for something to go viral, right? Yeah. Absolutely, and, and I and I think this is is got the it potential. <laughs> well, well, I think this has the potential to to do that. I think that it is way better uh, than the uh, which one went viral. The uh, uh, inside job. No, the uh, to make a murderer, making a murderer oh, with oh, the. Uh, murderer. Interestingly you know, enough, our PR company uh, actually did the PR for that. Yeah, making a murderer. It's like that. I think. Yeah, it's open ended too. Yeah, I mean, and but this is actually something that really happened. It's gonna, you know. Uh, when people see it, they're gonna, they're gonna go, Oh my God. And it's gonna play into a bigger part of where we are at in knowing that, look, 
if they've been playing this shit out since 1920 after the Great Depression and doing all of this to deregulate and do and do the things that are happening, now they have an open an open gate and they're getting ready to crash it again, right? We're going to go in, we're, we're going to go into something completely different now and we're and it's going to be into the uh, commercial sector because all of the uh the building space and and people that are going to start getting evicted because the money's going to run out. Yeah. Uh, all of this is going to play out and it's not going to be in the yeah, next two months get to pick up all of that uh foreclosed property uh on the cheap in fact blackrock owns a lot of that rental property in places like san fran and yeah. they're the ones who got it cheap uh um during the great financial crisis and they hoovered it up in a second because they were the administrators uh get a load of this blackrock was the administrator of what became maiden lane which was the precursor to quantitative easing which led to this 29 trillion dollar you know, mammoth, what they call bazooka from the Federal Reserve to uh, to to their own pockets. Anyway, um, the long and the short of it is um, they're doing it now. They're administering the CARES Act. They were put in place by uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, who, of course, came from where? Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's just a repeat. And, and, and the only way that we're going to do anything about any of this as, as a, a, a nation or a, a, a population, um, is call out the corruption, man. You gotta, you can't, you can't do anything, you know, and I'm going to use this analogy. You know, they, they say that, that, uh, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. Well, you know what? None of this other shit is going to even matter until you get rid of the corruption, because as long as the corruption is there, nothing will ever change. Nothing. Guys, I, I, I look, I'm a, I, I'm a, you know, I grew up believing in the justice league, right. In Superman and in, in Gotham and all the good guys. And you take care of bad guys. Isn't that what it means to be an American? Yeah. That's what I thought. That's why none of this shit added up to me. That's why I had to go find out for myself because I'm like, it can't be this difficult. It seems pretty simple because I started with a real simple entry point as a business guy. I knew when I was getting played and I was getting played in a way that was like, Whoa, this seems to be systemic. And little did I know how big and systemic it was. And that's what it was. I mean, it was, it was a nine year journey to get the $29 trillion truth. And that's what we did. I mean, look at the vulture loans. I mean, you, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that, that, you know, these yeah. banks will go to these, uh, poor countries and be like, Hey, we'll get you out of debt. You know, we'll buy uh, your, your debt and get you out of debt. And then they just, uh, control these, these, uh, countries. I mean, banks have so much control internationally and, I mean, look at the euro. I mean, how how you know? I mean, I was born in Portugal. I mean, there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theories on on how to uh, how that was one step closer to like a, a one world government type thing, but it didn't benefit a lot of countries and it hurt a lot of countries. And and uh, any I think anytime you give that many people power, it, it can be dangerous. The, the other thing too is we don't look at blue collar crime the same way we look at other crimes, you know, and that's a huge blue collar crime the same way. So instead of yeah. shooting one or two people in, in, in a murder, they they just wipe out tens of millions, you know, yeah. and then they get away with trillions. The, the, the goons on the on the sidewalk that are working for the local you know mob, man, these guys don't hold a candle to the level of criminality we're talking about. And Ricardo, I got to tell you, man, you're, you're, you know this stuff. But I think, is, is he going to be surprised by the information that we lay out in this? Uh, Sean, do you think? Because he knows it all, but he doesn't well, know the one, details. One, th one thing I like about uh, 
your the the documentary, and I haven't watched all uh, all of it yet. I'm I'm still getting through it. Is I I do like the fact that at least from uh, it, it seems like there's a a very like you're, there's character development, right? Like you open up with the suicide and all that stuff. And somebody like me, I love documentaries that are full of information and and like are just hard hitting, like connecting dots or whatever. But somebody like my wife, for example, if there's not a story, if there's right. not characters, they they just completely just, you know, they're like, oh, I'm not interested. You know, they just are completely, you know, they lose interest. And uh, I think sometimes you need, you need to do that. I mean, some of my favorite documentaries are, are a little bit of both are ones that it's personal. I mean, I had Chris Bell on, I don't, I'm sure you're probably familiar with him. He did bigger, stronger, faster. Prescription yeah, yeah, dogs yeah. And all. yeah. And, uh, what he talks about his own personal experiences with addiction and all that stuff and telling wow. that story, uh, while he's get you know, telling you the story of prescription, uh, how, I mean, similar to this story, how, uh, the, the regulators and the, companies that they're supposed to regulate are all in bed together and helping each other out the FDA and, and big pharma to revolving door, like a lot of other departments, yeah. he, you know, in, he tells that story, but he also gives you an inside personal look uh, at his life and other people's tragic experiences. And I think for some people, they kind of need those personal stories to put a face to it. I mean, it's like that quote, um, if one person dies, it's a, it's a tragedy, it's a tragedy. on every single point and i gotta say how appreciative i am of both of you to honor me with the opportunity to speak about this project because you know to your point ricardo ultimately um the nature of um the revolving door right the the nature of uh, common knowledge versus specific knowledge all of these different elements that you have when you put that together with firm and this is actually something we haven't talked about and I got to finish up with this because I've got to jump to another call, but we have guys that are the heads of the FBI in our program, head of the DOJ. And I'm talking third in the FBI under Comey and Mueller. This guy, Chris Wecker was the director of investigations, assistant director of investigations for the FBI. He had this dead to rights and they suppressed him. They suborned him. Same with our guy at the DOJ who worked for um, uh, Holder and Lanny Brewer. They suborned him. We've got them on camera telling us what happened. We got the guys from the SEC. We got the AGs. This is one thing for us to be talking. I mean, we got the whistleblowers on one hand. We've got the victims like you have said. And then we've got all of the guys that were the ones that could have stopped this, but because of political appointees and the corruption weren't able to. So we've got something for everybody because if you're paranoid about conspiracies, yeah, it's even bigger and worse than you think. If you want to blame the Obama administration, you're not wrong. If you want to blame Trump, you're not wrong. Why? Because they're all in on it. That's (laughs) great. This is our system. And if you believe in life, liberty, and justice for all, if you believe in equality of law, if you believe in equal opportunity, that ain't happening under this system. Mm-hmm. This system is you're a commodity. You're going to be chattel being carried out to slaughter. Uh, you know, good luck. I'm not chattel, guys. I don't know about you. I'm not expendable. Chances are you're not either. Yeah. So b- before we let you go, because I, I know you said you have to go, let people know. When the film's coming out, where can they see it? What's, you know, all the, the future uh, plans you have for, for this film? So we're going to have a live broadcast, and we're making it free to the public, and you can watch it on August 5th. It's going to be 8 p.m. live, Eastern time, Eastern daylight time, Eastern uh, uh, 8 p.m., I think I already said that. And it's going to be on Facebook Live, but it's also going to be on YouTube Live. And we're going to have, this is should make news, I hope, Um we're going to have the guys from the task force in Ohio who got this right on camera with the guy from the FBI who was doing this nationwide. And we're going to, cause I'm going to moderate it. 
make the world understand how the FBI didn't nail this. And they're going to get firsthand taste of how how the system can get mucked up or obfuscated or, you know, the good guys not being able to do their job because they got their hands tied behind their back by the bad guys who were corrupt. That's what we're talking about. So that'll happen on the 5th of August. We're making it free. We're going to make the first episode free indefinitely. It'll be on YouTube. It'll be everywhere. Then we'll be on uh, platforms everybody can download for 10 bucks uh, for the rest of the time. It'll be like on Amazon. It'll be on uh, Apple Plus. More news to come. So go to www.thecon.tv and you can sign up for updates and we'll get you all of that information. But I will finish with this. We should be on Netflix, honestly. We should be on HBO, but we're not. Do I know why we're not? I, I, I don't necessarily. Do I, do I know that they've seen the, 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 the series? I think some have. In fact, Netflix, Netflix just announced that they're going to give $100 million to black uh, communities around the country in wake of Black Lives Matter and you know that sort of thing. And we have a story of an African-American woman who committed, uh, shot herself that leads to this Pandora's box of the entire system. It's a miracle through a tragedy. And you would think Netflix would be all over this, but they're not. But then you go, or at least they haven't made us an offer yet. And you go, well, how do they do their debt financing? Well, they get it from the same guys we're exposing. That's our system. And so we got to do a workaround until we're mainstream or however it's going to work. We got to glob on to the millions of people that have been impacted by this. I talked to the pensioners the other day. There's 4 million strong that are going to be involved with going nuts about this. Same with black churches around America. And it's starting to groundswell. uh, But we can't get the word out fast enough because, you know, the system doesn't want this out. Well, yeah, so I, I'll put I'll put links to all that stuff in the show description on our YouTube channel, so people can get easy access to the to Facebook page, and uh, I'll try to get your uh, YouTube channel where everywhere this play this film's going to be streamed live. I'll put those links there so people can watch it. And uh, and Sean, you want to let people know about your uh, your show and and any upcoming plans you might have? Uh, well. I'm just uh, nowhere to go but up podcast, and I talk about uh, you know bottoms, life struggles, and how people get through them. Uh, you know, and, and in Which between, it's relevant. It's relevant to this because I mean, a lot of people yeah. are on the bottom no uh, working their way up because no of this issue. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, my my show. Well, well, my show's kind of taken on a different uh, life of its own. Like tonight, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Amy Pova, who was a uh, a recipient of uh, clemency through Clinton. Um, and, and part of how the war on drugs, uh, and conspiracy ties into giving people exorbitant amounts of time, uh, for, uh, vi- un- un- nonviolent crim- uh, crimes and, and low level drug offenses, uh, through conspiracy. Right. And they, and people are, you know, given 24, 33 life sentences, you know, when you can kill somebody and only do 20 in the states, in the state level so i'll be talking to her and like i said it just takes on a life of its own corruption is where i think we need to focus on uh not everybody can get on the same page about parties and this and that but everybody can get on board with not being cool with corruption right i mean and 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 really what what is this it's a a, what we're seeing the civil unrest in the streets and everything that's happening right now is just a symptom of corruption absolutely that's it well, it's, well, it's divide it's, and conquer. I yeah. mean, it's divide. They're dividing us and conquer, and yet we're all right. being screwed by the same people. It, it's right. and everybody's yeah. got to come to the truth because it's it's the power inside, inside, inside the circle. And they've gotten us. I mean, this is this is so paint by the numbers history, guys. I mean, you can see this play out a gazillion times throughout history, and it's like, but how we don't know that is just phenomenal to me. But 
thanks to guys like you, I pray that we get to the people that need to hear this because I'm sick and tired of people being strung out and basically hung out to dry. Uh, I want people to rally around the truth and demand justice and demand accountability because this country is dead. It is doomed if we don't get a hold of this now. I think it's maybe too late considering everything that's going on. I don't know. I hope not. But we need literally millions of people to be able to get to this thing. And, and why is that a possibility? Well, because tens of millions of people got screwed by the system. Yeah. And that's why it's still the same story. It's not an autopsy of something that happened 12 years ago. It's a story of how what didn't happen 12 years ago made now inevitable. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Sure. And, and, and that's why I always tell people, you know, I'm like, share these shows. I tell people you can post it anywhere you want. My shows are all about trying to get these conversations out there as, as quickly and as fast as possible. And obviously with all the, uh, you know, uh, the, Big tech censorship. Uh, I know Zuckerberg was uh, was being uh, talked to today about some of his uh, his biasness or whatever. But you know, you need people to do their part in kind of just spreading these conversations, spreading documentaries, spread like share these links with people. Uh, I mean, I call this podcast the Ripple Effect Podcast because I truly believe in the right Ripple on. Effect. This idea that we can all make a difference and we can all uh, and you never know who you're reaching and how far that reach is going to go. So uh, you know, people listening share the stuff if you if you think this conversation is important any documentary anything just share that stuff and 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 try to open people's eyes because we're all getting screwed by the same people and they're getting us to fight amongst one another and and making us think that we're much more different than we really are when really you know the people who are pulling the strings you know they don't give a shit about our skin color or ideology our race our religion they just care about money and power and that's the only thing that they uh you know that's holy to them so um, yeah I think- you think it's one and the same right but it's it, it like you like sean said at the very beginning man when you understand mmt look guys i'll finish up with this note because i am just so grateful for you guys but i really want your readers your listeners to understand this and same with you guys and and i hope ricardo if you get a chance to watch it that you'll let us know what you think but um Listen, like I said, the Bacora hearing happened right after uh, the Great Depression because FDR had the um, political courage to do it, which means that he reigned power in. Because think about what happened in World War II or what led up to World War II. Half the world went to communism. A lot of the world went to fascism. And we went to the law. <laughs> and we won. And we won became a force of good. And that's what I've always believed in. And that's what this is about. You know, it's 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 really good versus evil. Evil to me is deception, 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 deception. This whole system is deception. And, you know, uh, we can't overcome it only if people get hip to the facts. And I swear it's not complicated. It's so easy once you know what's up. And, and hopefully there's more of us that aren't a part of the rot and want to be a part of the fix. And, and I, the only way that happens is the ripple effect. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because in James Corbett's documentary, The Century of Enslavement, he talks about that, how like the idea that economics and the whole system is too complicated for a average person to understand. They do that on purpose. So you yeah. just think you throw your yeah. hands up and you're like, well, I, I just don't get it. It's like, no, no, you're getting screwed. It's not that hard to get. And if somebody explains it to you uh, in a manner, you know, that they're not trying to trick you, because in many cases they're trying to trick you and co- yeah. to convince you that like, yeah. hey, you just don't get it. It's too complicated. And that's not the case at all. So Absolutely. I think, you know, documentaries like yours and, and these type of conversations hopefully will uh, will get people more interested in these topics. I mean, it's 
we need to know how the, uh, you know, the fact that the Fed's printing money out of nowhere, creating more debt, uh, the fact that banks are loaning out money that doesn't really exist and, and creating all these issues, all these they issues. Use it, they, use it, they use it to, to, to create a fictional asset value that they control. That's the whole de- deception. This is, That's what they're all saw. about capitalism until yeah. it's time to get bailed out. And, and then, then it's like, hey, I like socialism. How about you give me some of the taxpayers' I, I, money? I call, it, I call it corporate capitalism <laughs> undergirded by a criminal syndicate. And, and look, guys, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm cool with people making money, but not when they're destroying grandmothers. You know what I mean? I think it's like, you know, you want to go deal marijuana to some guy who likes to smoke pot? Okay, whatever. You want to sell a record? That's fucking awesome. You want to, you know, be a basketball star and make millions of dollars because millions of people watch you? Amen, man. Kick ass, right? No, you do not get to destroy the American dream because of your corruption. That to me is where it's like, no, 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 no. And we got to get people to understand that because that's what's been going on way too long. And it takes a couple of middle-aged guys like us to tell the world how it cares because we've lived it. We've seen it, right? Yeah, just like a trip to yeah. the st- a trip to the strip club, man. You know, you're gonna get you're, you're gonna get screwed, but you're not gonna get laid. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And I used to work at one, so I'd watch that. I'd watch that shit all the time. Guys that come in there dropping hundreds and uh, dollars, thousands of dollars, man. And it's like, God, you're so stupid, man. You're not going to get laid. Yeah, like what you're saying tonight, Sean. We got two and a half million prisoners, right, in the United States. I think we've got the largest prison population in the world. We've got we the lowest, we've got the lowest conviction of white collar criminals in our history over the to Trump administration, and it was really bad during the Obama administration. Yeah, the bad guys are above the law, guys. That's not the United States. No, absolutely, no, absolutely. Well, that's what hey, we're here well, to do: thanks. expose, expose, expose the bullshit, so we can get on with real living. Right on, yeah. fellas. Let's, yeah, yeah. let's hopefully let's hopefully change things for the better. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Well, well thanks, Scott. Hey, thanks, guys. I really, really appreciate your time. I don't want to hold you up anymore, Patrick, because I, I know you're a busy guy and yeah, you're a go-getter, so you're probably going to get something. <laughs> you probably have like eight other business meetings and all this other stuff going on. But I got uh, calls. I got calls. We're, we're, we're doing PR right now. It's fantastic. Oh, I'm awesome. So, awesome. so happy that people are interested in talking to us. Awesome. Well, we'll keep in touch. I'll send you the links once the show's up and live. You guys can post it, share it anywhere you want. And, uh, and thanks, Sean, for joining me. I really appreciate uh, you exposing me to this documentary and this whole project. No, thank you, right man. On. And hopefully it makes it where it needs to and you get it in front of the eyes that need to see it. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, be hey. well, guys. All right, brother. Hey, thanks, guys. Take care. Keep in touch. Bye. Take care. Take care.